Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting System. I am Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, one of the great pleasures and privileges that we have with this podcast is we get to talk to some of the most interesting and influential um, entrepreneurs in the region. And we had that opportunity with Jim Spatz, the CEO I guess the chairman, sorry, uh, of uh, Southwest Properties. It's a really interesting story, beginning with his father, um, you know, who is a, basically a refugee coming from Europe, uh, who started the business, I believe it was in the maybe late 60s, 70s, and, uh, you know, created a, the initial portfolio of buildings. And then, Interesting enough, his son, who was trained as a medical doctor and spent 15 years as an emergency doctor, mostly in Montreal, but a little bit in Halifax, decided to join the family business. And he just took it in a completely, you know, interesting direction and it has done extremely well with the business. Absolutely. And it's an interesting story because now a lot of the properties that were purchased when his dad was in charge are now... Uh, uh, Jim is looking at redeveloping with a new a new generation of buildings. So there's uh, some prime prime real estate in Halifax. So it is a good story of entrepreneurship. It's a good story in a sector that you and I are following very carefully, and that is housing. And uh, he did provide us some insight into what he thinks needs to be done. But he's focusing on some very interesting properties, some of the high end stuff in Halifax, doing some of the big projects. Uh, com- combining residential with retail and services and, and building, you know, in downtown Halifax. So some very exciting uh, projects that he talks about in this, in this, uh, in our conversation. Yeah. And I just want to point out a couple of the developments that he's been involved in. One, which, which I think was instrumental in uh, changing the face of the waterfront in Halifax. You know, he built uh, Bishop's Landing in the south end of the, of the, of the harbor when there was really not much going on there and he really became an anchor for the development of that end of the of the waterfront now we have a complete waterfront going from the casino all the way down to pier uh, 21 it's spectacular and like the work that he did really laid the foundation for that uh, that the continuation of the development of the waterfront so that was really important you know, he's also been involved with the redevelopment of lands uh, that the uh, former uh, Y was located on and partnered with them to create a really interesting development of uh, apartments and condos called the Curve and the Pavilion uh, right in the downtown core, which incorporates the new uh, YMCA. And that I was, you know, for disclosure purposes, I, I'm a trustee of the Y. And I can tell you that that was a great partnership and the Y is basically reinvigorated by that redevelopment. So those are really important. And the third one I want to mention that I think is really important that is just about to happen is the redevelopment of the lands owned by the sister charity who ran the Mount St. Vincent forever, um, partnered with them, and it's creating a very interesting, uh, what he's, I think it's called Seton Village on lands adjacent to the university, which is going to be really a, a unique property uh, or community um, and, uh, and that's going to start, uh, I think he said next spring. So lots of really interesting projects that he had been involved in. And the other final thing I want to mention is that, uh, uh, Southwest Properties has developed a reputation as a high quality developer. 
most of the properties that uh, or all the properties that have been developed at least under Jim's uh, leadership have been of a high standard and they they stand the test of time and and Bishop's Landing is a good example of that I think that that's been around more than 20 years but it's really uh, stood the test of time both in terms of uh, appearance and uh, and 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 the maintenance of the, of the facility so if listeners want to get insight into the residential uh, uh, market, particularly um, uh, apartment units and issues around NIMBYism and the role of uh, government regulation. I think he provides a lot of good insight into uh, costs and, and the escalation of costs in recent years and other issues that uh, that we've been dealing with. Yeah, we're hearing the same story when it comes to housing. You know, obviously right now, high interest rates are one of the biggest barriers. Um, the ability to build uh, up with height is challenging in in urban centers um you know the rising cost of materials has really had a big impact and so you know there's lots of challenges including regulation but uh, we keep hearing the same stories and what the one final thing i want to say about jim that uh, that i know personally i've i've worked with him on a number of um community um, uh, initiatives uh, he's been really actively involved with lots of projects lots of good community uh, activities and this is the thing that stands out to me and i don't know if it's the same with you <clears throat> when we talk to successful entrepreneur entrepreneurs the one common one real common aspect of that uh, those conversations is that they give back in significant ways to their communities and i think that that's a great lesson for all business people that you know it's it's good to find ways to give back to the communities that have uh, made them successful absolutely so with that introduction, here's our very interesting conversation with one of the really, uh, you know, important developers in our community, Jim Spatz. We are pleased to be joined on the Insights Podcast today by well-known developer Jim Spatz, the chairman of Southwest Properties. Jim, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Don. Jim, you have an interesting background. You began your career as a doctor and ended up as a real estate developer. That's a significant change in career direction. Can you give our listeners a sense of your journey and your life path to, to how you ended up to where you are today? You know, I um, first of all, let me just tell you uh, how I and my family arrived in Canada. So my parents uh, arrived with me. I was 11 months old. I was born in Munich, Germany. Uh, they were immigrants, and so am I. And uh, my father, after oh, about three years um, uh, of uh, working in and then partnering in uh, grocery stores, uh, had his own grocery store on Moore Street, right across from uh, Church Street. And, um, and uh, he was a great entrepreneur, and he... Uh, he took a, a store that wasn't that big or busy, made it as big as it could be inside, you know, a Halifax wooden building that otherwise had uh, um, rooms and uh, uh, a three-bedroom apartment where we lived and, uh, and uh, turned it into a very good uh, small grocery store that actually competed in its day with, you know, the emerging supermarkets, because you could buy everything in that store and put together 
all the food that you needed to feed your family. Uh, and back then, uh, stores were not allowed to open on Sunday and uh, Sundays. And uh, and my dad um, would use the Sunday. He was very hardworking to clean the store, scrub the meat counter, and clean the store. And uh, and I'd often go in and spend a little time with him on a Sunday when he was doing that. And he said to me one day as he was scrubbing the meat counter, he said, this is what I have to do for a living, but you're going to do something better. You're going to get an education. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And, uh, and so I took that advice and, uh, and like, um, oh, a few of my very best friends uh, went to medical school at Dalhousie. Uh, became a physician, uh, practiced here in uh, in Halifax, Dartmouth for four-ish years, and then moved to Montreal, um, uh, did residency training at McGill University at their hospitals, and, uh, and became an emergency physician in Montreal, and did that for about eight years, and loved it. Um, um, and Don, just like you said, when you apologize for sending me that uh, backgrounder today, I, I like all the emergency disciplines, actually. <laughs> I think they focus your mind and, uh, and bring out the best uh, in people. And, uh, and um, I think I would have uh, stayed practicing medicine other than I'd grown up in the house of uh, a great entrepreneur. So my father went from that grocery store to buying a rooming house, to buying another rooming house, to uh, um, uh, buying, you know, small apartment buildings and, and then starting to construct apartment buildings. The first couple sort of behind houses that he owned in the south end of town that were small apartments, um, uh, uh, converted to small apartments, and he did a couple 12-unit additions to a couple houses on Tobin Street and started buying and building and, and built quite a business. So I grew up in the house of um, an entrepreneur who was in the development business, and even though his advice on that Sunday was do something better than what I have to do, become a professional, um, uh, once he had sold his store after, oh, well, about 20 years after buying it, he, uh, he to go full-time into uh, uh, the apartment business, buying and building. On Sundays, again, he would often take me around and we'd tour what he was doing, you know, construction sites. And, uh, and at a fairly young impressionable age I became addicted to the smell of freshly poured concrete because there's <laughs> nothing for me still as exciting as um, going to a site and uh, perhaps even more uh, so when it's just concrete when you've done nothing much else to you know uh, uh, make a building less than it might be and you don't have windows and you've got, you know, complete views and that kind of thing. I just loved um, going to those sites and the creativity involved in uh, building things. And uh, so even when I was practicing emergency medicine in Montreal and loving it, I still had the idea uh, even before then that at a point in my life I would 
get around to uh, joining uh, uh, the business that my father had created. And so I did that after almost 15 years of practicing medicine. I was uh, close to 40 years old. Uh, I still, you know, even when I was practicing medicine, still knew about what my dad was doing and paid attention to it. And, uh, and at a point in time, decided that I wanted to, you know, get involved in that. And so I moved with my young family back to Halifax and uh, had the naive belief that uh, business uh, was sort of like science. So medicine, of course, comes from a scientific background. And, uh, and I had the very mistaken idea that I could continue to do emergency medicine and maybe spend a day a week at Southwest, you know, uh, listening and hearing what the issues were and making decisions and then going back to the emergency room the next day. It didn't take me too long, maybe a year to understand that business is as involving as medicine. And, uh, and so I, I then went full time into, uh, into our business. That's, that's how I got there. And, uh, I'm blessed in having had two careers so far in my life, both of which I, I loved greatly. So what was the general time frame when you came back and, and, uh, I came back in 1987 and, uh, I stopped practicing uh, medicine. Uh, I I would do shifts at the Dartmouth General Hospital emergency room. Um, I stopped uh, practicing medicine in 1988, and I've been doing, uh, you know, um, uh, property uh, development since then. So I've been uh, um, involved in that, you know, much longer than you know, over 30 years, so much longer than my 15 years of practicing medicine. So was there a long overlap with you and your father working in the business together? Yeah, there was, a, there was an interesting overlap. I must say that, uh, so when I joined Southwest, my dad's office was a one-bedroom apartment in the Winchester Plaza on Moore Street. And uh, um, the fellow that he called his manager had the bedroom, had the private office. And then uh, the woman who today you would call his his executive assistant had the living room. And he had a tiny desk in the uh, kitchen. And I sort of (laughs) shared that kitchen kind of space with my dad. I had my own tiny desk in there. And and, uh, what I'd say about my dad, he was a great entrepreneur. He was not a delegator. And I think at um, points, uh, and he went past this point, my opinion, at points in building a business, it's good to, you know, and you don't have the money to have large numbers of people to delegate to. And it's good that the entrepreneur at the center of it um, um, has to do everything in terms of making decisions, doesn't necessarily have to swing the hammer, but has to do everything with regard to making decisions. And um, my involvement uh, had us turn more professional, I'd say. We hired uh, a great guy to be our uh, uh, CFO, Donnie Klo, who went on to be the CEO of Crombie Reit. Um, we uh, 
we were having a heck of a time when I arrived computerizing. I don't know uh, um, if you went through the transition from paper to uh, to um, uh, IT, uh, but uh, to the digital world. Um, but we had a heck of a time because we had a bookkeeper who was not bad, but just uh, uh, really did not have the skill set um, and was not of the generation that uh, helped the world make that most significant change. So uh, we became more professional. We, in the first project I got involved with, which is uh, the terrace on South Bland Street, which we still own, built a, our first purpose-built office, right? Uh, which is a good thing to have. And um, and um, and parallel with that, I was learning much more than you know as an observer. So think of all the great education I would have had just going around on those Sunday drives and. Um, sitting with my father, who even though I was going to be a doctor, if he was buying stuff, so he'd build things, he'd buy, even if he was buying stuff, he would show me how he looked at, at the numbers of the building. So, and that's a lot of education, but it's still being an observer as opposed to, um, as opposed to, um, 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 the more conventional education, um. I belong to Young Presidents Organization. Part of what I have been able to do with that is do a, an annual one-week course at Harvard Business School, uh, which I've done for more than 15 years now. And so I sort of think, and I've got a certificate now from Harvard. After you do this course for nine years, they give you a certificate that doesn't say that you've got an MBA from Harvard, but gets them to treat you like an alumnus and and ask you to donate money to the school. <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I almost got, uh, you know, um, or I got a lot of learning from doing that kind of thing. And uh, I got a lot of learning by just doing. So, the, you know, when I got back, we were just not quite started construction. We were close to finished design of that first building I was involved with, uh, the terrace on South Bland Street. And uh, that and a couple other things that I was interested in doing created some conflict with my dad, who, um, who, um, and we are still very, um, he built good buildings. I would say that we build good buildings too today, uh, but we focus on, you know, uh, beauty and design at a way that he didn't. Um, so the, and that created conflict between us because sometimes you have to spend a little more money to, you know, get what you want in design. So that building changed a little bit with regard to its design when I arrived before we started construction. It changed for the better. I hired a landscape architect. It was the first time we'd done that, that kind of thing. He helped reposition, you know, where, where the parking... Um, ramp went in the you know he improved the building not just he didn't just pick plants he improved the uh, the massing and siting of things on the site so i got involved in that kind of stuff and it would uh, sometimes create conflict because i was the new kid and uh, it sometimes created uh, a little bit of increased cost um i i would say that good design is um 
critical to you know great buildings and uh, and uh, it's not like you have to double the price to make them take them from mediocre to very good and uh, and that's what we continue to focus on trying to do very good buildings but my dad created a, a, a great base for us you know he uh, he created a, a significant apartment business in Halifax that was you know uh, uh, a good starting point for me so Southwest properties is now one of uh, Halifax's most important landlords um, yeah. Uh, how many residential buildings do you currently own, and and how many units are are are, are in total? We have do you, approximately two thousand units, pretty well, uh, or entirely, um, except for one small building, entirely on the peninsula, pretty well downtown and in the south end. We have about two thousand units in. 32 apartment buildings in Halifax. Several of those buildings we would not build or buy today because they're small. They're too small to move the needle, but we've owned them for a long time. We pretty well uh, love them all. Uh, a few of them um, are on our development plan to tear down and replace with modern, bigger buildings, that kind of thing. But yeah, we own mm -hmm. About 2,000 units. We're in the hotel business as well. We own four mm. hotels in uh, Halifax and uh, New Brunswick. Uh, we're in the office business in St. John's. We own the largest uh, uh, office building in Newfoundland, Atlantic Place, um, on uh, Water Street, and uh, a couple other buildings in St. John's. And, uh, we own the majority of Premier Executive Suites, which is Canada's largest uh, provider of corporate furnished accommodations. Well, that's a that's a great portfolio, Jim. Uh, yeah. I, I want to go back a little bit in time. Um, there was a time where you also owned Sunnyside Mall, I believe. Uh, tell us that story. Uh, I'd be interested. In, how so, did you I mean, end up we were, owning that? We were that pretty and, big and, in the apartment business. It was. Yeah. Uh, it was. Um, it was a different. It was a different landscape in Halifax than it is today. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, much of what you see. So think about that. This is 1988. It's uh, 35 years ago. Um, much of what you see. Um, in terms of new building development um, that has totally changed Halifax as a city um, didn't exist and uh, I was sort of itchy to grow us in areas outside of uh, outside of apartments and uh, I mean it's uh, it's it's interesting that if you look at what keeps us busiest today it's building apartments in Halifax you know our first in our core business but um, in a lot of ways um, getting into other kinds of real estate didn't just make us bigger but gave us experience that uh, that makes our buildings better so if you look at the recent large buildings we've built in downtown Halifax uh, they're all mixed-use buildings and they're better for it so our ideal building has great things at the bottom that makes them better better places to live for our tenants and and for you know um, 
people who live in Halifax because we've got uh, you know some great restaurants and retailers and that sort of thing. And so I'm I'm a big fan, and we build generally very good and successful mixed-use buildings. And that comes from our years of branching out into retail, like Sunnyside Mall and that kind of thing. We're we're experienced uh, we're experienced developers in you know with more than uh, one color on our paint palette let's say right yeah so i wanted to ask you a bit about bishop's land landing it's now a landmark on the halifax waterfront uh in fact uh it's been credited with the start of the redevelopment of the city's waterfront the southern part of the harbor can you tell us a little bit about that development? Maybe some of the main challenges you had to overcome, and and uh, and yeah, I mean the biggest challenge was uh, was winning it. It was a RFP uh, uh, for a piece of land that was owned by Waterfront Development Corporation, now developed Nova Scotia, and it was a competitive bid, and uh, we won it. Um, we tend to prepare well, let's say, for competitions. And um, and for whatever reason, they picked us. And uh, what were the challenges? The challenges were that um, it was owned uh, by government, even though we um, developed and still have a very good relationship with Develop Nova Scotia. And we are, you know, getting close to completion of Canard, which is next to where I'm sitting right now. And that was also an RFP, Develop Nova Scotia. So we, we, uh, we um, uh, A, prepared for that pretty well in terms of what we proposed uh, building. We already had uh, years and years of relationship with development, and it's been a good partnership and a good relationship. So, uh, so the first challenge was winning it, and we won it for whatever reasons. And then government, uh, there was an interesting dispute with regard to the filled site that we were about to build on. So if you look at Bishop's Landing, if you look at Kennard next door, they're called Lower Water Street. You know, the ad to the street's called Lower Water Street for a reason. It was the water, right? It was the water's edge. And then, you know, over the years, wars were built as Halifax, you know, became an important, you know, marine-based city. And, uh, but it was still Phil uh, that got put into the harbor. So that was a challenge. And it was a challenge for bishops because we put some of our parking in the harbor, let's say, and that's just a different, uh, doable, but different and expensive kind of uh, uh exercise and um uh, but we did it and we did it well and it's still good parking more of our parking is on grade behind retail space that kind of thing but uh, that was a challenge it was i believe the first building in halifax that you know did significant parking in the harbor let's say so you need a very robust structure you obviously need good waterproofing you need pumps to keep out the water that does get in. Uh, you need to actually fill that parking structure with water before it has a building on top of it, or otherwise it would be like a rubber duck in a bathtub and pop out of the water. Um, so there were those, you know, engineering construction challenges. 
um, in the planning process, there was great opposition to Bishop's Landing. Um, mm. I think it came from neighbors who viewed it as a uh, as a um, um, interference with their right to have an unimpeded view of the water, um, which is actually it's a public right. It's not an individual property right. I mean, yeah. So there was uh, opposition that I think had that as its base, and then the opposition with regard to change. So there would have been op- opposition based on the fact we were building across the street from, you know, the brewery market, which is a historic building, and we were going to put a new building across the street from a historic building. So we had a lot of opposition, and uh, and. Um, and at that hearing, it was Halifax City Hall. At that point, it was an HRM. There would have been 30 people show up to, to talk uh, 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 against this building, including one nice older lady who believed that we were going to tear down the brewery market. That's sort of what she had in her head, however she got there. And, and uh, we would have had 10 or 12 people show up uh, in favor of that building. And... Uh, um, that's more than a particular story. That's about, I think, a lot of it, uh, the human fear of change, right? So there was some opposition, but we uh, we got it approved with a substantial, you know, uh, margin at City Hall that day in, uh, in um, you know, 1997, I think. And... Uh, and um, um, those were the significant things. It uh, the uh, one of the challenges was uh, even though the apartments leased up very quickly, we did commit to that mixed use uh, idea. And at that point in time, in the late nineties, um, this location, Bishop's Landing, was a bit of a bridge too far. You would say it was sort of the downtown, but it was at the edge of the downtown. It definitely was not center ice. And so for the commercial space, and we did a substantial amount of commercial space, uh, 40,000 square feet. We did over 200 housing units. Um, but for the commercial space, um, it was a, a, a bit of a challenge leasing it, and it was a, a challenge uh, not for all our tenants. Uh, some of them took off right from the beginning, but for for many of our early tenants, it was a it was a struggle surviving. I described us as a very um, gentle gardener trying to get a garden to grow on the ground level of Bishop's Landing. So we were we were good landlords that way and tried to you know help those tenants along, right? Yeah. And support. What about what about now? It seems pretty busy down there these days. Is it's, it, it's is very it... busy. Yeah, it's very busy, and uh, we've got. Uh, We've got great retailers, great restaurants. Um, I'm, I'm particularly excited by Canard, which also has a lot of uh, a lot of commercial space at the bottom. We um, we uh, will have four or more new restaurants, four are leased already. We got a bit of space left. It could go to retail. It could go to restaurant. That kind of thing. I'd say four or five restaurants, and added to the you know. Uh, four or five restaurants at Bishop's Landing. There'll be 10 restaurants in this location. It'll create a ton of energy, uh, 
not just for for the city, but for people who live, uh, you know, in Canard uh, and at Bishops, it'll be pretty stunning. You will have, and the, these are good, great restaurants already, and the ones that are coming are great restaurants as well. So that's pretty cool to uh, be able to take the elevator downstairs and have a choice of ten different great places to eat. Um, re, uh, you know, restaurants are the, are the new strong point in retail, even though there's other retail that is still strong, but um, people, especially young people, are more interested in um, experiences than material goods, and that's good for restaurants and bars and that kind of thing. Yeah, Absolutely. So one of your other prominent residential properties is the Pavilion. It was opened in 2015. Yeah. One of the interesting components of that was the partnership with the YMCA. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, that site was owned uh, by the YMCA and uh, and um, the CBC, and they were both um, looking at change, and wisely they came together to jointly offer that site. Um, and uh, each of them brought you know particular strengths to the table. Uh, for the YMCA, the fact that there was going to be a new YMCA in Halifax helped them, not us, because. You know, when it went out for RFP, um, um, this was already baked in. It helped them get more density. So the city gave them more density to help them increase the value of that site and uh, and uh, help fund the new YMCA for Halifax. And so we got involved um, in an RFP again. And um, one of the things we brought to the table um, was that we influenced that original design for uh, the YMCA uh, in that, um, you know, a lot of spaces need street frontage. A lot of uses do. A YMCA dressing room does not want to be on the street, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a, so we helped them remass that building, helped us pay them a better price for it because we got, you know, retail space back. So we helped with that kind of thing. And we always viewed it as a, as a partnership. And, uh, and we built their uh, facility. Uh, they, in terms of the details of their design, that was totally their thing once we had figured out which space was the best space for them to be in. And, um, and, but we, we, we built it. We were the general contractor for them with that and it was a partnership and we still have a very good relationship with the YMCA because we coexist you know in that they own their YMCA they're in a building that has condominiums above it so it works well they just have a a massive 70,000 square foot condominium let's say and uh, <laughs> and at the same time um, Don that'd be a big place to kick around in wouldn't it 70,000 yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> but anyway they, um, Is it, they, isn't that close to the size of your unit there? I can't remember exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, we do have uh, a lovely the, condo, but it's nowhere near that size. <laughs> the pavilion, uh, Jim, was the first project, I believe, that Southwest was its own general contractor. Is that right? No. Maple before it. Um, oh, okay. Uh, we were the general contractor for Maple, and we've been the general contractor for well, everything we've built since. 
Yeah. So what, what led you to the decision to become your own general contractor? Because that was a change, obviously. Yeah. Some people would assume it was so that we could save money. But I mean, you have to hire a good team to be a general contractor. So I don't think we necessarily saved money at all. But it was the idea of having more direct control and our own people uh, focused on building something really good. So even if you're a good general contractor, at the end of the day, your first interest is your own bottom line, right? Mm. So for us, uh, we need to bring in the building at the right number. But um, parallel with that is uh, the ability to influence the quality of the work that gets done. So the right. people who run that project, they understand that deeply, that we want to build buildings that are very good buildings that generally we're going to own for a long time. So the idea that we build it cheap and then have to come back in two, three years fixing all the things that are wrong is not on for us. We like uh, life cycle value. We like to get it right the first time. We like mm. to pay for whatever we do once, not over the years that yep. we fix it, that kind of thing. So that, that was the main influence. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you already mentioned the Canard Project. It's a big project, obviously. Uh, how big is that project? It is uh, 235, um, 235 residential units. Um, and, uh, and, uh, we're moving our office in there. So a substantial office on, it's interesting, Kennard, if you look at that site, it's got a mm -hmm. decent amount of slope. Uh, all you have to do is walk in front of it down lower water street mm -hmm. and it will change one story from the high point across from Moore street to mm -hmm. where you get to Bishop's landing and will change one story. So our retail is ground level on the boardwalk right. and, and our, our, um, the apartment building part is one story higher than that. So ground level, let's say at lower water in Morris and, uh, and that's yeah. where our entrance to our, to our new office will be. And then we've got, um, you know, retail all along the bottom and that will be other than some parking, we have public parking. We have two parking, uh, um, two types of parking. We have parking for the people who live there and parking for the people who uh, are coming there to eat or shop or uh, right. spend time on the boardwalk, that sort of thing. So on the ground level, we have parking, public parking, and as well, we have a significant amount of commercial space, most of which uh, will be restaurants. Um, right. And uh, we've got uh, four great restaurants uh, signed already and, um, and, uh, and maybe one more to come. Our present yeah. office where I'm sitting today, it'll be a restaurant when this is all done. So it'll get us to uh, When do you expect, expect that project to be completed, Jim? Uh, end of April 2024, so about uh, okay. eight months right. from now. And, and uh, how about the leasing of the units? I understand they're almost all gone. Is that true? Understanding what, Don? That all the, all those units are already you know spoken for. No, is no, that true? No, no, that would be pretty unprecedented. Eight months before you open, have everything um, everything leased. But we're over forty percent leased, and if you look at um, Maple Curve, they also yeah. hit the market fairly leased, and we thought like. 
50%. The day we opened was pretty nicely leased. Right. Um, but Canard's looking like if we stay on the same pace uh, when it's when construction in, is finished the end of April 2024, it'll be pretty well fully leased. Wow. If we stay on the same pace. And, uh, wow, that's fantastic. That. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So your company purchased lands owned by the Sisters of Charity, including the mother house used by the nuns as a retirement home. I understand you have a significant plan under development called Seaton Ridge, which is yeah, being positioned in yeah, South Sex Urban Ridge. Village. Can you tell us a little bit about that development? Yeah, we've been at this for a number of years, and it's interesting. Uh, on the one hand, and we're going to talk about uh, you know um, availability and affordability of housing. On the one hand, uh, costs have uh, increased, especially during the pan since the pandemic started. Costs have increased massively, and on the other hand, um, um, the project um, will be a better project because of where we are in Halifax. So Halifax is growing so much, right? There'll be a lot of demand for this. We will, for us, it's a it's a new thing to be able to build a whole community, not just a significant building. So, and so. Had we started to build it, um, you know, several years ago, uh, costs would have been much lower. Uh, on the other hand, the world has changed. We have learned Halifax has become a much more mature market in terms of design. There are buildings around Halifax that I really admire that we didn't build. And, um, and uh, so it'll be a better project and it'll cost a lot more. <laughs> but we are hoping in that, uh, in that, um, you know, um, um, we are at the point where we're hoping to go into the ground with all our infrastructure uh, uh, early spring of next year. And uh, we're working hard on that right now to be ready to do that. And uh, we're actually, and we had our uh, senior executive meeting this morning, we're actually uh, engaging an architect, not just to do the layout and the general, you know, sizing of buildings, but we're engaging an architect to start to do the uh, conceptual design of our first construction building. So we will be building roads, putting pipes in those roads, uh, wires, etc. We're burying our electrical actually so that will differentiate Seton from many uh, typical suburban developments so and you won't exactly know what feels different necessarily till you figured out oh wow I don't see any wires up there I don't see any poles and that kind of thing so we're starting that work hopefully early spring of 2024 and at the same time we're getting going on the conceptual design of uh, our first building because we want to jump on that as quick as we can um, once uh, once the before the infrastructure is fully complete it'll be in a state that we can get construction equipment up there and start building and building along with uh, our partners who will probably be of the same mindset so we're going to ask you in a minute about the the environment right now for building and the, and the new tax incentives and so on but before we do, are, are there any other developments that you're working on that you want to share with us in Halifax or elsewhere? We would have oh, about five of 
those buildings that my father bought, uh, didn't build, on great sites in the downtown and south end that are past their best due date and uh, are not the highest and best use of those properties. So we would have five-ish, um, maybe six sites on the peninsula in great locations where we can build buildings that are not as supersized as Canard, let's say, but are substantial buildings between 100 and 150 units, and we've got uh, those. And we will likely start building one or two of those when we finish Canard in uh, uh, next spring, because we'll hopefully be build, building roads, but no buildings in Seton Ridge, and we've got a great team of people, and we don't want them to have to go somewhere else and work, so uh, we will mm -hmm. like be starting one or two of them in 2024 as well. So, Jim, I just we want to switch uh, gears here a little bit. We want to ask you as a developer, what are the biggest challenges that you face in the current market? I mean, uh, two, there are two biggest challenges. Um, one is the massive increase in cost. Everybody sees it in their everyday life. I think whatever inflation you experience when you buy things out there in stores, grocery stores or other kinds of stores, construction inflation has been higher uh, for a couple reasons. Um, some substantial amount of things that we buy uh, especially on the equipment side, come from the United States or def definitely outside of Canada and uh, are subject to changes in currency and their inflation, of course. So uh, there's, there's, uh, there's one thing and just the whole supply chain um, induced uh, uh, inflation, I think, is more magnified uh, because you've got... Um, um, how many supermarkets in Canada versus how many people who can install drywall in Halifax, that kind of thing. So here's a place that is building more, not nearly enough, but more apartments than it ever has before with a labor force that hasn't necessarily expanded. So there's a challenge, you know, the availability mm -hmm. and cost of everything that goes into construction and especially the skilled workers that you need to hire are not unlimited, right? There's a limit on that. So there's, and that, 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 that affects the whole cost side and the availability. If you're a good developer like us, you usually have relationships and you can get somebody to come work for you, but the cost of that has gone up a lot. I would say since in the last uh, three-ish years, 30% maybe, and that's north of where, you know, if you put inflation all together. And then on top of that, interest rates have at least doubled, and that is your biggest cost um, with regard to, you know, uh, investment real estate, because that's a cost that goes on, you know, beyond yeah. when you get the building done. So those are your biggest uh, challenges, uh, construction cost and interest rates. And, you know, um, what, what, what are the other challenges? Um, here's an interesting one. So there was an issue of The Economist magazine 
five or six years ago, uh, and the cover page was the housing crisis in the world. That crisis has gotten much worse, but it was enough of a crisis back then that it was the cover story on The Economist with, you know, the series of articles and several pages on that. One of the interesting things in that article was a graph that showed the annual production of housing units in in the world, the global production of housing units. And at that point in time, it had already peaked. And every year it was shrinking a little bit in the face of a global population that was growing. So this is not a Halifax issue. It's not a Nova Scotia issue. It goes beyond Canada. It's a world issue. And... Um, and uh, among the different things, a couple of which I've mentioned, um, was, uh, as the British would call it, you know, and those guys writing The Economist sit in London, uh, entitlement, right? The whole approval process. And if you talk to developers anywhere uh, in Canada, um, it's just a question of how tough it is and how long it takes. It could vary from city to city, and we've developed in a number of cities, but how tough it is and how long it takes to get approval. And then beyond that specific project approval is the question of what what does planning look like in cities? So um, dialing back to Halifax, um, Halifax had um, and still does have some uh, it's decreasing, I think, opposition to change, opposition to density, a particular opposition to height. And mm-hmm. height is one of the friendliest ways to get density, in fact, right? If you don't have height, then what you have to do is make your buildings larger at the bottom, eat up any possibility of open space if you do want to create more housing units. So height is one of the friendliest ways to create density. And uh, so that whole environment, which I think is improving in Halifax today. Uh, I remember I was at a, an open session at one of the large spaces at Pier 21 when they were bringing in HRM by design. And uh, you would have had some significant opposition in the audience from mostly gray-haired people who were pretty allergic to any kind of change. But you would have had significant support from some younger people who thought the idea that their city was going to grow up and become a modern city like some of the cities they've been to, who, who liked the idea that we were going to try to create an environment where um, lots of good things happen, like people you know, living in proximity of where they work, not having to drive on highways to come in from the suburbs to the downtown, uh, the kinds of amenities that exist, both public and private amenities. So, you know, lots of great restaurants are a private amenity. Uh, a new swimming pool on the commons, that's a great public amenity. These things don't happen, in fact, if nobody lives around there, sorry. So, uh, so um, um, you're starting to see change that way, and I think what's happened in Halifax, the stunning amount of growth that we've had the last few years um, is uh, proof that people are voting with their, you know, uh, plane tickets and their moving vans 
uh, that they like where Halifax is going, notwithstanding its change. It's it's a lot of positive change. I remember about four or five years ago, my wife Val and I walking downtown. Um, we were probably just in, it was before Pavilion was finished, but we moved into Curve, the adjacent rental building, uh, before we moved into our condo at Pavilion. And, uh, and, uh, and we walked downtown without a restaurant reservation because back then you could always get in anywhere you wanted without a restaurant reservation. And it would have been a Friday night. It would have been late August, so students were returning to town. But I'd never experienced this before where we went like to two or three restaurants and nobody could seat us, right? I mean, uh, maybe that was inconvenient for us, but it's a great thing for the city that we have a vibrant downtown and we didn't have that. So so the change that we're seeing in Halifax and the fact that um, the downtown is not recognizable and there, 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 there are a lot of good things being done out there in suburbs too, where they're becoming more balanced communities and they have enough people living there that they have amenities as well. You know, there's, there's a lot of exciting things going on in, in Halifax today. And still in the face of that, uh, we do not produce anywhere close to the amount of housing that we need uh, to support our growth. So, um, if you look at the growth that we've experienced, you know, of, you know, 30-ish thousand people a year in Nova Scotia, mostly in Halifax, we do not have anywhere near the housing to uh, support that kind of growth. And uh, generally, um, I think we've grown well. We've grown well as a city. It's become a better city to live in, and uh, and we gotta we gotta figure out how to how to how to fix that. And back to all those challenges of building things now, and it's 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 supreme irony that at the point where we really need to step up uh, production of housing, the costs have gone um, up at a historically high level, and interest rates which are still historically low or still double what they were. And, you know, that was the foundation for, you know, the growth we've seen to today. So it's challenging on the, you know, um, entitlement part. I, I think the city has gotten significantly better. I think it's gotten significantly better. It's, uh, it's, uh, it understands that uh, instead of dealing with the problems of, um, stagnation. We're dealing with the problems of significant. So instead of dealing with the problems of stagnation, we're dealing with the problems of growth on a per capita level that is at the top of Canadian cities, which is quite stunning. It's sort of refreshing for somebody who grew up uh, in what used to be a have not part of Canada to be, you know, that uh, that that vibrant, that buoyant, that um, that uh, that challenge of dealing with um, um, what we always hoped for coming true, but we got to figure out how to uh, deal with it, or we will not be able to sustain it. Um, I was chatting with. So on that score, I, I just want to ask you a, 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 a couple of questions. I mean, you talked about, you know, we're not keeping pace with, this, with the demand. 
you know, we have issues around affordable housing. You talked about the approval process, which is really, you know, kind of challenging. What what recommendations do you have that would help increase the supply of housing that we need in the marketplace? Um, I think that uh, the recent policy change on HST is a huge help. It is a huge help. It, uh, uh, you know, again, as I said, I think costs have gone up at least 30%. 15% is not, you know, the cure, but it's, it, it is hugely impactful. And I think it opens the doors uh, in a way that uh, 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 they were not open a few weeks ago before this got announced. Um, what else do we need to do? Well, what about the what about the announcement that the the feds are going to put twenty billion dollars into low interest loans to support rental construction market? Twenty billion so I, over over what period of time, Don? Is that I, I don't know. They just they just announced that this week, Jim, that they're they're going to put uh, some money uh, to provide uh, lower interest uh, loans uh, for that. Yeah. Maybe you haven't heard about I that. Mean, um, Look at it this way. They also announced, I think, just in the last couple of days, that the uh, federal government and uh, the province of Nova Scotia will jointly build 200 and something uh, public housing units right. in uh, Halifax, Cape Breton, and some other places in Nova Scotia. Do you know well, what we need to produce to uh, catch up over a period of several years? Way more than ten thousand, so it mm. it's it's seriously a drop in the bucket. It's not a bad right. thing. Um, right. I have my own theories around affordable housing, um, and um, uh, there's more than one. Uh, I'm. It's interesting. They uh, there was a discussion on CBC Radio. Uh, yesterday, there was uh, around affordable housing, and and um, remember what I said about uh, why we build ourselves. It's not to save money. Um, it's because we like to have really good control of the quality of what we build. It's right. not it's like um, uh, doing doing development is. Fat with uh, fat with uh, margin or profit. It's not. It's not Apple. Uh, it's not Nvidia. It's not you know some startup that suddenly is worth a hundred billion dollars. So if you took all the profit out of it, it would still not be affordable. So yes. if I put up and we we are doing deeply affordable units now uh, at Seton Ridge. Um, it was part of our proposal. It might have helped us win that RFP with the Sisters of Charity. Um, and uh, at the point we started to look at affordable, we, we were having a hard time. I get it now. I understand it now. People need housing that fits into their income. That's right. what affordable is, right? But right. think about the following. Um uh, I'm looking to buy a car. Um, I just graduated from university. Um, uh, I could go to a new car dealership 
and they could have done an affordable car, right, for me. What would they take out of that car? They'd definitely take out the leather upholstery. They'd take out some bells and whistles. That car would change in cost by some number of percentage points, but it would not go down by tens of percent. It wouldn't go down like 30, 40. You still need to build the uh, frame of the car. You need to put a motor in it and a transmission. And you get, you get my gist. And yeah. my question is, why would we think that we could build brand new units that if they um, had their bells and whistles would cost over 300000 for a price that was way less than that. We still need to excavate a site, build a structure, uh, put a skin, exterior skin on that structure, put windows in, put electrical in, put mechanical in, heat it, air condition it, whatever else we need to do, build parking spaces, that kind of thing. It would not make it affordable. So if you took some bells and whistles out and put in a cheaper floor and a cheaper kitchen and didn't do anything fancy with the appliances, it wouldn't change it enough to make it anywhere close to affordable. And I think it's a flaw in the in the assumption and took the profit out too. And mm-hmm. the profit out, you'd take the experts out of building it and you'd probably lose that profit back. Why do we think that that's the way to build affordable housing? Do you know we own, of what my father built, we own many hundreds of units in the downtown and South End. Their rents are a lot less than our new shiny buildings that we put up. Even if we made those new new buildings a little less shiny and a little less fancy, the rents would be way higher than those apartments in that well-maintained mm-hmm. portfolio that my father assembled decades mm-hmm. ago. Why right. is that? Uh, yeah, why is, why is that our model for affordable housing? I mean, there are some examples. Having said that, there are some examples in history where government has created legacy affordability. You know, Vienna is now named one of the best cities to live in the world. One of the foundational reasons for that is that... Uh, Uh, After the First World War, uh, the Austrian Empire was defeated. It was uh, a dreadful place to live. A socialist government was elected, and they built thousands of good units back then, right? Mm. You know what? They're still good units today. They're they're century old. They're still good units today. So there's not just one model, but they they happen to be 100 years old, and they're affordable, right? Um, yeah. So there's lots of lessons to learn out there in the world. So I'm not necessarily that impressed with billions of dollars that are thrown at new construction projects, thinking that that is going to help our crisis. I think we need to be um, more. So, for example, if you look at those deeply affordable housing units we will do at Seton Ridge, and if you look at the cost that will cost us, if you look at the cost of doing that because there is a delta between the rent that you'd need to break even and the rent that you'd need to provide somebody who needs a deeply affordable unit with that unit. That cost spread over existing units to bring their rents down, they're already way lower, 
that mm. would get you way more of those units, right? And as mm. a developer, if they said to me, okay, instead of doing this, we need you to do that, and that would be writing a check that would, you know, create a financial foundation for affordable units that started at a lower rent. They might not be mm-hmm. even shiny. They tend to be bigger, right? If you look at apartments, yeah. to make them more affordable, they shrink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure I'm a fan of present right. policy. And the other thing I'd say about affordable housing is that uh, it's one of the crises. Housing supply itself, it's not just affordable, it's just supply. Just, uh, you know, uh, housing supply itself is a crisis, right? We don't build enough of it. Right. And uh, so at whatever level in the market, it's a crisis. And affordable housing is a crisis. It needs more um, partnership than it gets in Canada. Across governments, industry, uh, each level of government has a place to play. Uh, industry has a place to play. Not-for-profits have a place to play. So, you know, at, uh, at Seton Ridge, we'll build uh, a number of deeply affordable housing units, and we will likely sign a lease with a not-for-profit and ask them, get them to run that, because we're not experts in that, you know. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, but, listen, uh, we're all... I, I, think, I think it's a problem... Uh, um, in terms of what what are Canada's biggest public issues today with regard to what don't we necessarily do uh, at a level that we should be or could be perhaps doing? Uh, it's health care and it's housing, and it needs much more coordination. It doesn't necessarily just need money. Money is right. obviously a dumb solution. Uh, no, often a dumb solution to a problem. It, it right. doesn't necessarily spur innovation and new and, and better ideas. We're almost out of time, Jim, but I did, I did want to ask you one other question. You're at an age where you have to think about the transition of your company. I don't know if you have yeah. any kids involved, but what, what, maybe it's too early for you to think about this, but what, what, do you have a plan, I guess, is the question. Um, here's, here's my plan. And I've always said this. So I have, uh, two sons and a stepdaughter. I've always said, uh, in terms of what you should do in life as advice to my kids, mm. um, do something that you love to do. It's one of the foundations of having a good life. If it happens mm-hmm. to involve our company, um, um, that's great. But if it doesn't, and you found something you love to do, that's just as great, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, here's here's. So right now, I do not know who might come into uh, our business. Both my sons are involved in business, and they're quite successful. But it's not our business, and uh, I uh, I I think both for them, and I admire it. Uh, doing something yourself that is not simply, and there's nothing wrong with uh, joining the family business, but doing something yourself uh, that you love is, you know, uh, sometimes more rewarding than just being the boss's son. And I came in as the boss's son, but I'd done something I I love. But we've had an advisory board. This is a product of, you know, 
all these years. I went to Harvard and I went to a lunchtime session on advisory. We've had an advisory board for probably over 12 years. And, uh, and both my sons now come to our quarterly meetings. And so what I say to them is, if you, because we're at a size that we, we, we uh, can both uh, afford, but also attract really good people. And uh, so what I say to, what I say to, uh, to my kids is that if you're not, um, if you're not running the company, if you're not working in the company, you at least need to know how to be a smart owner. Right. And so, uh, my stepdaughter Maddie is 19. She's at Acadia. She's doing business, so it's 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 maybe a better education for you know what <laughs> I do than going to medical school. And uh, and uh, and um, uh, but both my sons uh, come to our advisory board meetings now. So no, oh, that's a good idea. Enough that uh, it's it's definitely on the list of where you know the family wants to have its wealth. And uh, if you're not running the company, you need to know how to own the company as a smart owner. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Listen, Jim, this has been really a great conversation. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Insights Podcast and giving us an overview of the you know many accomplishments of your company. You know, you're, you've got a great reputation in the marketplace for building quality buildings. Uh, and not only that, but you have a great reputation in the community for being a great community builder. Um, and, uh, you know, we really appreciate you joining us on the podcast and we want to wish you continued success. Yeah. Thank you, Don. It's been uh, an interesting and fun conversation. Thanks so much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.